Hello, and welcome to Undressed Historia, a podcast that discusses women in history and their legacy. I'm your host, Margot Collins. Today we're going to focus on Cleopatra, and since there were a few Egyptian queens named Cleopatra, I'll clarify the one you're thinking of, the last one. Before we get started, I just wanted to say how difficult of a topic this was for me. One being the first episode, which is a challenge all on its own, and two, it was surprising to me how little I knew about her and Egyptian history in general. I have a master's degree in European history, so my knowledge of women's roles in royalty are very Eurocentric. Cleopatra's story will be divided into two episodes. The first one will be on Cleopatra's life and some background on Egyptian queens and politics. The second episode will be more of an historical analysis and focus on what we generally know about her versus what we should remember her for. Another obstacle I encountered during my research was that a lot of primary sources had a Roman bias. This gave me an idea, so I took a poll from a wide range of people that I know, asking, without looking anything up, tell me everything you can remember or know about Cleopatra. The results, which I'll discuss in better detail in the second episode, reflected that Roman bias for the most part. So, without further delay, let's get to today's topic. Cleopatra VII Thea Philopater was born in 69 BCE into the Ptolemaic family of Egypt, who were actually Macedonian Greek in origin. The Ptolemaic dynasty ruled Egypt for a little less than 300 years, starting a few years after the death of Alexander the Great and ending with the death of Cleopatra. The Ptolemies embraced Egyptian culture during their reign. Their pharaohs were linked to Egyptian gods and goddesses, and they maintained good relations with the priests. It was also typical in ancient Egypt for pharaohs to marry their sisters, and the Ptolemies continued that tradition. From what I researched, the earlier pharaohs had multiple wives, a main royal wife, and lesser wives and concubines. However, the Ptolemies had one wife, but they also had courtesans, and often the case was that they had children with these other women. From my research, it appears that none of the sibling marriages of the Ptolemies produced any children. It was during the Ptolemaic dynasty that a title was used for royal women. Ancient Egypt beforehand had no official title for these women. Instead, they went by their relationship to the pharaoh. A woman could be the mother of the pharaoh, wife of the pharaoh, sister, daughter, or even pharaoh herself. The most famous example of that would be Hatshepsut. I used her as an example as her reign is well documented, and while she was co-regent, there are many depictions of her in male dress asserting her power. During Cleopatra's time, they used the Greek word for queen, Basisa. It was also commonplace within the Ptolemaic dynasty for a king and queen to rule together in place of a single monarch, and with Cleopatra, we'll see that that was no different. In addition, some queens were associated with Egyptian goddesses something that Cleopatra also embraced. I won't go into too much detail on the power of a female monarch, but from what I found while researching was that they had as much ruling authority as their male counterpart. In fact, Egyptian women could live alone, own, inherit, buy, and sell property. They could also initiate divorce, as well as choose their own husband. In other words, they had more rights and freedoms than Greek women. While the exact role of an Egyptian queen is not fully understood, it seems that queens played an important part in religious ceremonies. I want to quote this book that explained it really well. This is from Joyce Tildesley's Cleopatra, The Last Queen of Egypt. Quote, The precise role of the traditional Egyptian queen consort is as yet ill understood. 
but it seems that she offered the king a vital female element that would complement his maleness and make him a whole perfect ruler, end quote. To summarize how Cleopatra came to power, her father, the pharaoh Ptolemy XII, relied heavily on Rome, which caused strain with the Egyptian elite. Around 58 BCE, he was exiled, and his wife, and either sister or cousin, Cleopatra Trophina, became the official ruler. Now, it's not entirely clear if Cleopatra Trophina was his wife or daughter, so I'll be referring to her as his wife, but again, we're not 100% sure. She co-ruled with his daughter Berenice, so either her daughter or her younger sister. In 55 BCE, with Roman support, Ptolemy XII returned to the throne, had Berenice executed. Cleopatra Trophina, who's referred to either as Cleopatra V or Cleopatra VI, had already died at this point, and he appointed Cleopatra VII, who was 17 at the time, as his co-ruler. Keep in mind that Cleopatra was now the eldest child of Ptolemy XII. He also had two sons and another daughter, which we'll learn about them later, and I'll also include a very, very basic family tree in the show notes to help with this confusion. The following year, in 51 BCE, Ptolemy XII died and left the throne to 18-year-old Cleopatra, again his eldest surviving daughter, and his oldest son, Ptolemy XIII, who was about 10 at the time. Based on my research, it's not clear if Cleopatra and Ptolemy were officially married or not, but they did rule together. Regardless, the two came to power at a time when Egypt was suffering from unreliable Nile floods, high inflation, and their father's debts. Immediately after the death of her father, Cleopatra adopted the name Philopater, which means father-loving, and Thea meaning goddess. Now this choice to add these names, to me, shows great thought. You'll hear later during the war between Mark Antony and Octavian, Cleopatra paused before making some decisions. I'm guessing to wait and see what action would be best. She seemed to always think before acting. Anyway, her father, Ptolemy XII, named himself the new Dionysus. Dionysus was the Greek god of wine. It was not uncommon in Egyptian culture that royalty was regarded as gods. With Cleopatra's choice, she invoked a connection to her father, possibly reminding others that he had chose her as his co-ruler at the end of his reign. So therefore, she had a legitimate claim to the throne, and she was divine just like her father. She was a very intelligent person, as is evidenced through her command of several languages, which we'll discuss later when bringing up her legacy. So it's safe to say that any move she made was well thought out to strengthen her position as the rightful ruler. I can't help but think that she probably had the memory of her father executing her older sister Berenice in the back of her mind as well. Unfortunately, a couple of years after the start of the joint rule of Cleopatra VII Philopater and Ptolemy XIII, the young king's advisors plotted against Cleopatra. In 49 BCE, Cleopatra's name disappears from official documents, and Ptolemy XIII is considered the sole ruler of Egypt by Rome. At this point, Cleopatra was forced to flee Alexandria. So I'm going to try and summarize her return to power as Egyptian politics become more and more intertwined with Roman politics. Long story short, at this time when Cleopatra and her brother were at war for the throne, Julius Caesar was at war with Pompey the Great. Pompey lost the Battle of Pharsalus and fled to Egypt with Caesar right behind him. 
When Caesar landed in Alexandria, Ptolemy's advisors greeted him with Pompey's severed head, which upset Caesar more than cheered him. While Pompey was dead, he was his son-in-law and a fellow Roman citizen. With conditions in Egypt getting worse, Caesar decided to end the dispute between Cleopatra and Ptolemy. On one hand, Ptolemy had military support, had the support of the Alexandrians, and was already in Alexandria. However, he was young and still controlled by advisors. Cleopatra was older and more experienced and had the support of the native Egyptians. Cleopatra made her way to Alexandria and snuck into the palace to meet Caesar. So this is one of the legends of Cleopatra, that she snuck into the palace via rolled up carpet, was enrolled at Caesar's feet, and then an instant attraction occurred between the two. It could have been a carpet, or maybe linens. Either way, she somehow found her way to Caesar alone without alerting anyone else. Plutarch wrote that the whole thing was staged by Cleopatra. And I'm going to quote him really quick here. Uh, quote, It was by this device of Cleopatra's, it is said, that Caesar was first captivated. For she showed herself to be a bold coquette, and succumbing to the charm of further intercourse with her, he reconciled her to her brother. End quote. The two were in mutual need of each other. Cleopatra was well aware that Rome could protect the Ptolemaic dynasty, and she learned from some of her family members that we did not discuss that defiance of Rome usually ended with death. Caesar, in turn, needed Egypt's wealth. He may have distrusted Ptolemy XIII at this time due to the handling of Pompey's death. Caesar decided that once again Ptolemy XIII and Cleopatra would rule together as was stated in their father's will, and the other siblings, Ptolemy XIV and Arsinoe, would rule as king and queen of Cyprus, which had been a Roman property from the previous ten years, making it under Egyptian control once more. So, that was Caesar's plan. However, not everyone was in agreement about that. Ptolemy XIII, the current pharaoh, allied himself with Arsinoe, and they continued to wage war alongside their generals. Ptolemy still had the Alexandrian support, and they named Arsinoe as the queen, which I didn't mention before, but she was already queen briefly after Cleopatra had fled. This war concluded in 47 BCE, after a final battle that ended with Caesar's victory, Arsinoe's capture, and Ptolemy XIII drowned in the Nile. Arsinoe was later banished to live at Ephesus at the Temple of Artemis. Caesar then reinstalled Cleopatra, who was about 22, to the throne, this time co-ruling with her youngest brother, Ptolemy XIV, who was about 13. Before we move on, I just want to add that I didn't go into too much detail on the Civil War, because aside from seeking Julius Caesar as an ally, Cleopatra was pretty quiet during those battles. It was during Caesar's time in Egypt that him and Cleopatra became lovers. Now, we have nothing in Cleopatra's own perspective about anything, including her affairs, so we don't know the true nature behind this relationship. It certainly could have been romantic. They seemed to have gotten along and they were both ambitious people. However, there was an age difference. Caesar was about 30 years older, which doesn't mean they couldn't have been in love, but it's just something to think about. The relationship could have also been purely political. Caesar needed Egypt's wealth, so it was very important that he keep a good relationship with whoever was on the throne. Cleopatra, who also needed to keep a good relationship with Rome, also needed a child, 
ideally a son, to continue the family line. A son by Caesar would almost guarantee that Egypt would remain independent from direct Roman rule. So his son would rule Egypt, and since Caesar was already married, he was in no position to formally acknowledge a foreign son. Regardless of the basis of their physical relationship, at some time between 47 and 44 BCE, Cleopatra gave birth to a son who she named Ptolemy Caesar. The paternity of Ptolemy Caesar has been debated. However, it is safe to assume Julius Caesar was the father. First, the name Caesar, which the Alexandrians renamed him Caesarian, meaning little Caesar, and Caesar himself didn't seem to mind the usage. Some Greek historians also wrote that Mark Antony declared that Caesar acknowledged Caesarian as his son and that the boy resembled him. After Caesar left Egypt and after the birth of Caesarian, Cleopatra started to strengthen her hold on the throne through the cult of Isis. Isis was the goddess of health, marriage, and wisdom, and was seen and worshipped as the ideal mother and wife. She was also extremely popular outside of Egypt as well. Again, a royal family member connecting themselves with a god or goddess was very common. Remember, Cleopatra's father considered himself the new Dionysus. Cleopatra's great-grandmother, Cleopatra III, considered herself to be the living embodiment of Isis. Cleopatra VII would be named the new Isis, or Nea Isis. Coins were minted and statues made depicting mother and child, mirroring Isis and Horus. Now, the date is not known exactly, but shortly after Caesar's murder, Ptolemy XIV also died at about the age of 15. The cause is unknown, but it is generally accepted that Cleopatra poisoned her brother. So now we have Cleopatra co-ruling with her infant son, and most threats to her rule were gone. Her connection as Nea Isis was now stronger as ever with her role of a single mother. The next three years of Cleopatra's joint rule with her son was relatively peaceful. However, there were challenges. The Nile did not flood for two years in a row, which meant failing crops, hunger, disease, high inflation, and civil unrest. The annual flooding of the Nile was extremely important for Egypt's economy and crops. So too little of a flood or too much could have a disastrous aftermath, more so for the cities rather than the countryside. Back in 50 BCE, a decree was issued from Ptolemy XIII and Cleopatra VII that grain was only to be transported to Alexandria to help make up for the lack of crops. That was the earliest document found from her reign. There were also low floods again in 42 BCE that caused famine and disease, so this was a reoccurring problem throughout her reign. Due to the inflation, she was forced to lower the silver content in her coins and she increased the production of bronze coins while cutting their weight. She also had the coins inscribed with their official denominations to prevent the loss of their value by traders weighing them. She granted extensive tax privileges to a Roman general, who was one of Mark Antony's allies, allowing him to import and export a certain amount of goods without paying a tax. This was clearly an attempt to buy the Roman general's loyalty and support. During her reign, Cleopatra completed some building projects her father had started, as well as her own. Evidence of Cleopatra's contributions to temples and other buildings are by dedications and statues present. Two examples of this are at Armat, where she added a birth house to the temple, and at the temple of Dendera. Okay, 
So now we're at the part where Mark Antony enters her life. Now it is possible that they met long before they became romantically involved. Their first formal meeting that is documented, although by sources written long after this was supposed to have occurred, was after the death of Caesar, but it is possible they had met before. Again, Egypt was relatively peaceful, albeit very troublesome. Rome, however, had their own internal issues that were spilling outward. For those unfamiliar with Roman history, I will simplify. And for those who are familiar, I apologize if I oversimplify here. Caesar's friend, Mark Antony, Octavian, Caesar's great-nephew, and Marcus Simelius Lepidus made up the Second Triumvirate, a political alliance. The three men were in agreement to capture Caesar's assassins, Brutus and Cassius, and they expected Egypt to help. Remember, despite Egypt's problems that stemmed from the lack of Nile flood, it was still the richest, and therefore they were expected to provide financial aid. Brutus and Cassius were also expecting Egypt to help them. Cleopatra, as she had done before, waited as long as possible before she was forced to pick a side. She went with the second triumvirate and sent back the four Roman legions that had been stationed in Egypt by Caesar in 48 BCE. In return for her assistance and to keep Cleopatra's support, the triumvirate officially recognized Caesarion as co-ruler of Egypt. Again, Roman approval of who was in power in Egypt was extremely important at this time. When Cassius pleaded for aid from Cleopatra, she replied that the famine and plague prevented her involvement. I should also add that Cassius intercepted the Roman troops she had sent, and they switched sides with no issue. When Cleopatra attempted to sail with her fleet to join Octavian and Antony, her ships were badly damaged in a storm and she fell ill. By the time she recovered, both in her health and the number of ships, she learned that Cassius and Brutus committed suicide following their defeat at Philippoli. After the battles there, Octavian fell ill and returned to Rome and left Antony to establish control of the eastern territories. The following year, in 41 BCE, Antony was in modern-day Turkey, raising funds to pay the loyalists to the triumvirate. He was in need of money and summoned Cleopatra to him to answer charges of aiding Cassius. I didn't look too much into the basis of this charge. I think it's quite obvious that Antony made up these charges in hopes of getting Cleopatra to give him money. We don't know the thoughts behind Cleopatra's reply, but I imagine that she was hoping that the charges could be bought off. Whatever her reasons, it's documented that Cleopatra arrived dressed as Isis, sitting underneath a gold-spangled canopy in a gilded ship with silver oars and a purple silk sail, essentially making a show of her wealth. The Ptolemies, however, were known for their decadence. Roman writers stress the luxury and wealth of the Ptolemies, not just Cleopatra. So, Cleopatra's arrival could have been a show of Egyptian wealth meant to entice Antony into an alliance, or it could have been the norm for a goddess and queen. I would like to think it was deliberate, but again, we have nothing from Cleopatra's point of view to explain her actions. What we do have is quite a lot of records from Roman writers and writers with Roman sympathies. Similar to Cleopatra's meeting with Caesar, where Cleopatra is painted as a calculating femme fatale, her meeting with Mark Antony ended with Antony immediately falling for her charms. Plutarch wrote of this meeting, quote, Caesar had known her when she was still a girl and inexperienced in affairs. 
but she was going to visit Antony at the very time when women have the most brilliant beauty and are at the acme of intellectual power. Therefore, she provided herself with many gifts, much money, and such ornaments as high position and prosperous kingdom made it natural for her to take. But she went putting her greatest confidence in herself and in the charms and sorceries of her own person. End quote. Dio wrote the following about Antony. Quote, it is indeed true that he had earnestly devoted himself to his duties so long as he had been in a subordinate station and had been aiming at the highest prizes. But now that he had got into power, he no longer paid strict attention to any of these things, but joined Cleopatra and the Egyptians in general in their life of luxurious ease until he was entirely demoralized." End quote. Both men wrote that Antony was easily seduced by Egypt's wealth, and in Plutarch's case, Cleopatra's beauty and intelligence. However, we need to keep in mind that these sources were written after the fact, when Mark Antony had a failing reputation amongst Romans, which we'll discuss later. Based on the fact that Antony was a friend of Caesar's, and one of three to form the Second Triumvirate, he was an intelligent and ambitious person, not someone easily seduced by wealth or beauty. Another myth is from Piney the Elder, who wrote that Cleopatra remarked to Mark Antony that she would pay 10 million sesterces for a single banquet, and then proceeded to remove a large pearl earring, drop it into a glass of vinegar, and once it dissolved, drank it. This story could have been fabricated to illustrate or exaggerate Ptolemaic decadence. However, it could also be true. Pearls can dissolve in an acid solution like a strong vinegar, and Egyptian vinegar was known for its strength. And while pearls were not part of Egyptian fashion, they were in Roman fashion, and coins exist depicting Cleopatra wearing pearls. I want to quote uh, Joyce Tildesley's Cleopatra Less, Queen of Egypt again. I thought this explanation and theory was very well put, so I wanted to quote it directly. Quote, If Cleopatra's sour wine was strong enough, and if she allowed enough time, experiment would suggest more than 20 hours for a large whole pearl in cold vinegar. The pearl would indeed dissolve, neutralizing the acid. Cleopatra, who acquired a considerable posthumous reputation as an alchemist, may well have known this. Whether the resulting mixture would have been palatable, or indeed drinkable, is another matter. Nor does the need to boil, crush, or steep the pearl in acid necessarily render the story invalid. Cleopatra, acknowledged mistress of the public spectacle, could have stage-managed her act and Antony, flushed with wine and love, is unlikely to have noticed. It is quite obvious that Cleopatra could simply have swallowed the pearl whole, although swallowing, and presumably retrieving the pearl later, would have turned the grandest of gestures into a cheap trick." End quote. Their meeting was beneficial to both. Cleopatra helped finance Antony's campaign, and he ordered the death of her sister Arsinoe, who, if you remember, was living in a temple in Ephesus. He also ordered the death of a young man claiming to be Ptolemy XIII, who declared to survive rather than drown in the Nile. Cleopatra returned to Egypt and was followed a month later by Antony, who spent the following winter in Alexandria. While the two were getting close in Alexandria, Antony's wife, Folia, was butting heads with Octavian. Appian, a Greek historian, wrote that Folia was jealous of Antony's affair with Cleopatra, and that she caused trouble for Antony back in Rome. 
Fulia died around 40 BCE, and I'm sorry I can't go more into her life as she seemed pretty interesting in my research, but we still have a lot to cover here. The same year Antony left Egypt, Cleopatra gave birth to twins, whom she named Cleopatra and Alexander. Relations between Antony and Octavian were already deteriorating, and in order to prove his loyalty to Octavian, Antony gave up control of Gaul and married Octavian's sister, Octavia. In 37 BCE, Antony, Octavian, and Octavia agreed to renew the triumvirate for another five years, along with agreements of betrothals, meaning Antony's son with Folia to Octavian's daughter. And Antony provided Octavian with 120 ships in exchange for 20,000 men. When he did not receive the troops, he traveled to Antioch and summoned Cleopatra. After all, they were military allies, and she had the funds to back up his expenses. By this time, Cleopatra's Egypt was quite prosperous, and with all of her siblings dead, there was no threat to her throne. So now she had the opportunity to really negotiate here. In exchange for what provisions Antony needed, she asked for land, specifically the parts that used to belong to the Ptolemaic Empire under Ptolemy II, Philadelphos, which included Cyprus, Crete, Crenancia, large parts of Colsyria, Phoenicia, Celia, and Nabatea. Antony agreed, and with that, Cleopatra became the world's wealthiest monarch. Antony and Cleopatra seem to have picked up where they left off in their personal relationship. Antony formally acknowledged his twins, and they went through a renaming ceremony, and were from then on called Alexander Helios, or Sun, and Cleopatra Selene, or Moon. In 36 BCE, Cleopatra gave birth to another son, whom she named Ptolemy Philadelphos, after Ptolemy II, whose lands were returned as part of their deal. I just want to take a quick moment here to summarize, as we're about six years away from her death. So around the age of 33, she gave birth to her fourth child, the third with Mark Antony. There is some confusion if the two were ever officially married, and why would have that been a concern for Cleopatra? Some classical sources state that the two were married before Antony's marriage to Octavia, and some modern writers believe that their marriage was after, around 34 BCE. Regardless, if there was a marriage between Antony and Cleopatra, it would not have been recognized in Rome, only Egypt. As far as Rome was concerned, Antony's only living wife at the time was Octavia, and Cleopatra was no more than an unpopular mistress. Quick side note, Antony divorced Octavia in 32 BCE. There was a huge public celebration in Egypt in 34 BCE known as Donations of Alexandria, and that gives us insight to the question of why would it be important to Cleopatra if they were married. The Donations of Alexandria was this grand ceremony where it's recorded that Cleopatra, dressed in the robes of Nea Isis, sat on a golden throne with Antony sitting beside her on a silver throne. All four children sat beneath the two on less impressive thrones. Antony delivered a speech which included his plans for the eastern lands that they acquired. Cleopatra was officially recognized as the Queen of Kings and her sons who are kings, and her co-ruler, Caesaron, Pharaoh of Egypt and King of Kings, was formally acknowledged by Antony as the legitimate son of Caesar. 
The other three children were named rulers of territories. Alexander Helios was to rule Armenia and Parthia. Cleopatra Selene received Crenensia and Crete. And Ptolemy Philadelphos was to rule Sicilia and parts of Syria. This ceremony essentially outlined Cleopatra and Antony's plans for their own empire, so it would be important to be considered married to make their children legitimate for their expansion beyond Egypt. Again, Egypt would be continued to be ruled by Cleopatra and Caesarian, so no marriage was needed on Cleopatra's part as the royal line would continue through her son with Caesar, but beyond Egypt's borders it would be very important. Again, we have nothing that survived to express how Cleopatra felt on the issue, but as far as Mark Antony was concerned, the two were married. For that evidence, we have a letter from Antony to Octavian, which one English translation is worded. Quote, what has come over you? Do you object to me sleeping with Cleopatra? But we are married, and it is not even as if this is anything new. The affair started nine years ago. End quote. In some other translations, the phrase, but we are married, can equally read as, she is my wife. And the term sleeping with can also be cruder given the verb used, so other translations use screwing. That shows that Antony wasn't being over polite or formal to Octavian regarding his relationship with Cleopatra. Octavian declared war against Cleopatra and had a few reasons why, and they're mostly connected to Antony's actions. Antony divorced Octavian's sister, Octavia. Antony connected himself to Cleopatra, the goddess and queen of kings. He also gave away territories that belonged to Rome to Cleopatra. And he officially recognized Caesarian as Caesar's legitimate heir. Essentially, through Antony, Cleopatra became a huge threat to Octavian, and therefore the future of Rome. Octavian's real issue here was with Antony, but he didn't declare war against him, but instead he turns up the propaganda against him in Rome. Stories of Antony's subservience to Cleopatra and his quote-unquote un-Roman ways by living a decadent lifestyle in Egypt spread like wildfire, but Antony's popularity plummeted only slightly. It was a smart move on Octavian's part to declare war against Cleopatra. To declare war against Antony, he would be risking his popularity and support in Rome, and essentially was just reduced to spreading propaganda about him. Antony, in return, also published propaganda against Octavian, stating that while many Romans were starving in the streets, Octavian held banquets and gorged on food. Both sides geared up for war. Antony and Cleopatra took their troops and moved to Athens. Once they had their soldiers and fleet along the west coast of Greece, they waited for Octavian's forces. There was a concern that Antony had, if they were to invade Rome, that the Romans would see this as a foreign invasion and unite against it. He was also concerned that Cleopatra's Egyptian troops might not follow his orders if Cleopatra returned to Egypt so their best course of action would be to fight Octavian on neutral territory. There were some military skirmishes on both land and sea, but we're going to skip ahead and summarize the outcome of the decisive one, the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE. Cleopatra and Antony had more ships and soldiers, 
but Octavian's forces were better prepared and better armed. The battle ended in Octavian's victory. Cleopatra retreated back to Egypt, and Antony at first went to Greece and then to Egypt once he learned of a garrison that betrayed them in support of Octavian. This was the beginning of the end, and Cleopatra must have recognized it. She had her partially completed mausoleum filled with treasure, riches that Octavian desperately needed to pay his troops to avoid mutiny, and protected it all with flammable material so she could torch it all if attacked. At this point, we have writings from Plutarch stating that Cleopatra started experimenting with poisons, and she wrote to Octavian asking if he would allow her to abdicate in favor of her children. Octavian replied that he would consider her request if she would renounce or kill Antony. Antony sent letters and messengers to Octavian who didn't reply. After more of his troops surrendered to Octavian, Antony, who had become increasingly paranoid, returned to Alexander. As soon as he got to the city, he heard rumors that Cleopatra committed suicide, so he in turn stabbed himself in the stomach. As he lay dying on the floor, Cleopatra's secretary, Diomedes, arrived to tell him that Cleopatra was in fact alive and barricaded in the mausoleum along with all her treasure. Antony was carried to where Cleopatra was and he died in her arms. Octavian entered Alexandria and learned that Cleopatra, her treasure, and Antony's body were in the mausoleum. So this is where we're going to have to end today's episode and the first part on our two-part series on Cleopatra. The next episode will be up next week and we'll discuss her death and legacy. Also, as a side note, it will be a lot more informal than what today's episode was. With this episode concluded, I request that you review my podcast on iTunes and any other app you get your podcast from. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated, and I can be reached by email at undressedhistoria at gmail.com, as well as other social media platforms. Undressed Historia is researched, written, and produced by me, Margot Collins. The music theme you heard today was by Kai Engel. If you enjoy this podcast, you can follow me on the following social media platforms to stay up to date on everything happening. Our Instagram and Facebook is Undressed Historia Podcast, and our Twitter handle is Historia underscore pod. Thanks again and tune in next time.